Well, friends, uh, you have Jude open in front of you. We read from verse 17, where Jude says, But you, beloved, uh, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual or worldly persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. Amen. Well, friends, if uh, you recall our reading uh, from Second Timothy chapter 2 on Sunday evening, uh, Paul writes in verses 16 and 17 of Second Timothy 2, he says, Shun profane and idle babblings, for, there will, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And then he goes on to say about their message, those who uh, peddle that message. He says, their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. Friends, what we are dealing with here in Jude is a cancer. It's a cancer that Jude says is now present in the church. These certain men, verse 4, of whom he writes and has described, these certain men are perverting uh, the grace of God, suggesting that the grace of God provides a license for them to do as they please. To believe what they want to believe. And in a far more devastating and insidious way. To be the catalyst for encouraging others. To imbibe this dreadful cancerous poison. Now remember Jude is not writing about this as we have seen in a theoretical way. Uh, Jude is not suggesting that this as a possibility might happen. Now friends, if you read uh, the text and you have the text open before you, will see, you will see there in verse 4 that these certain men have crept in on notice. They are actually there. And Jude, as we have seen, is prepared to use very striking, forceful, unequivocal language as he describes these certain men because he he cares so much for those to whom he is writing. Uh, Any notion that Jude is just, you know, some kind of cranky individual, some, you know, person who's always finding faults, a nitpicker, or somebody who just wants to look for bad things all over the place, Any of those notions are completely set aside by just reading and paying attention to the tone of his letter. Notice back in verse 3, he refers to these saints as beloved. He says, I love you folks. I love you dear brothers and sisters, he's saying, and I was planning to write to you about the vastness of, of uh, our salvation, the wonder of it, uh, but I felt constrained due to current circumstances 
to take on the particular responsibility of pointing out what we are actually, or what you are actually facing. And you will notice here in verse 17 uh, through to 18, he once again is addressing them in this kind and beloved way. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. My friends, we shouldn't be surprised by this in the same way that our bodies are prone to disease. Um, so the, the body of Christ, to keep the analogy with respect to the church militant, you know, the church on the earth in this fallen world engaged in a in the spiritual battleness in this fallen world, the, the body of Christ is also prone to infection and disease. Uh, the body of Christ is susceptible to that which may be planted within it unwittingly, but purposefully unaware of it in terms of the immediacy of what it's actually doing and what's going on within. But nevertheless, over time, it expands. It permeates and it explodes in such a way that suddenly people are saying to themselves, how on earth did that ever happen? Where did that come from? And you see, the fact of the matter is that silently... And in a creepy sort of way, these individuals were present and they were sowing their destructive heresies. And so Jude says, I'm going to insist on this. I'm going to insist that you fight with every fiber of your being, fight with everything that is within you to contend earnestly for the faith that has been entrusted uh, to us, that has been guarded by us and has to be cherished by us. Now, Jude is about to make a transition from the this great word of warning, which he began in verse 5, uh, and it goes all the way through to verse 19. So, so he's going to make this um, great transition. But before he gets to the transition in verse 20, before he gets to the encouraging side, before he wraps it up with the, the, uh, the positive side, uh, he takes a final glance at these individuals. He takes a final glance at these certain men. He wants the saints to know about their character. He wants them to know about their uh, devastating impact and the devastating impact that it will have upon them if they succumb to the teaching of these people and they just let it go. So what does he say? Well, first of all, he recognizes the real danger of forgetfulness. 
The Bible has a lot to say about remembering, about fastening our minds on things. But you, beloved, you, beloved, remember. That's how he begins in verse 17. He has already reminded them about remembering back in verse 5. He said to them there, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, but I just need to keep telling you these things. You need to reinforce it. You need to remember. And so it's vital that the, reader, uh, the readers of Jude's letter, which is uh, us included, because we're reading it, aren't we? Uh, and this letter is all about the gospel and a defense of the gospel. It's vitally important that the readers of this letter, ourselves, uh, that we understand the message of the gospel, uh, that we understand the nature of the truth, because it's only in being made aware of the truth that we will be able to identify error and heresy when it raises its ugly head. So, for example, as many of you will know, you don't learn how to deal with counterfeit money or carnage uh, by, by spending your time looking at you know, the counterfeit notes. And, um, you know, going over all those counterfeit notes and examine them. That, that's not how you deal with, uh, with uh, counterfeit money. You learn how to identify the counterfeit by embedding in yourself a complete understanding of what the true actually looks like. So you familiarize yourself with the actual thing, the, the authentic thing. And you become so familiar with the authentic that you can identify the false so imbibe the reality imbibe the reality of God's word God's truth and he says remember the words spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ remember Jesus said I'm going away and the Holy Spirit will come and when the Holy Spirit comes he will guide you onto all truth so the truth of the gospel embedded in the hearts and minds of the apostles is then written down, inspired, it's inscripturated for us, given to us in the scriptures. That's God's word. And this word is a lamp to our path. It's a light to our feet. And therefore the warnings of Jude are so vital for us. You know, when Paul, if you remember, left the Ephesian elders at Miletus, wasn't it? He warned them, after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, and that's a frightening bit, isn't it? You know, these are men of renown. They are men of uh, character within the church, respected within the church. And Paul is saying, you know, from among yourselves, there are these savage wolves that will not spur the flock. They will rise up from among yourselves, speaking perverse things. To draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember. There's that word again. 
Remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every one of you day and night with tears. I don't know. You never told what happens after it, are you? You sort of try and imagine things. Do you think that, you know, those Ephesian elders on the beach, or maybe walking back from the beach, said, Nah, that'll never happen here. You know, we've, we've got the Apostle John in our midst. You know, John's our pastor, young Timothy. No, Paul's got it wrong. There's no way in the Ephesian church of all churches that any of this heresy could ever gain a foothold. But it did happen. That's a frightening thing, beloved. It did happen. And Jude says the apostolic warning, the apostles spoke, the apostles prophesied, the apostles <coughs> predicted that this would happen. And Jude is saying, look, you must remember this. What they did say in their predictions, it came true. Well, verse 18 tells us Um, what the apostles said. The apostles said that there would be mockers, there would be scoffers in the last time. Now, people obviously ask um, at the moment, because of the chaos in the current world, do you think that this is the last time? I would Noted in other studies that um, people through the generations have always felt that they're in the last time. You know, go back 80 years during the Second World War. Do you think it's the last time? And people were thinking, yeah, it's the last time. Go back to the First World War 100 years ago, just over 100 years ago. Do you think it's the last time? Yeah, it's the last time. You You go back every generation, every century, people thinking, is this the last time? Back to the time of uh, Patrick, you know, when Rome was caving in, wasn't it? About the 5th century. Um, The world seemed to be just collapsing. Is this the last time? Of course it's the last time. Look at the state of the world. So people say, you know, look at the world today. Look at the chaos. Look at the mayhem. Do you think it's the last time? Answer, yes. Why? Because the last time began with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and will end with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you push the question and say, but is it the last of the last time? It's the last of the last of the last time. Well, we have to give a a guarded answer to that. Because Jesus said, nobody knows the time. But at the, by the same token, there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus makes this clear also in Matthew chapter 24. That prior to his coming, the forces of evil will be more visible and more audible in the wake of his return. And for that reason, and in the light of that, Isn't it absolutely crucial? Isn't it vital 
that the people of God are standing firm on the truth of the word of God. Because the battleground in every generation, the battleground is the battle for the Bible. Now we know that that began in Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent comes and clear instruction, as we know, had been given to uh, Adam and Eve uh, by God. You know, you can enjoy um, all of this, but you can't touch that. And Satan comes and his opening gambit is, has God indeed said? And then he perverts what God says. You know, God did really, did God really say that uh, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And he's twisting it. You know, God never said that at all. And subtly, and the subtlety of it, and the innuendo of it, and the creepy dimensions of it, you know, that is all to be found among the mockers who will be arriving at the last time. Because, as we have seen in this letter, they are marked out by certain things. They rely on dreams. They follow their ungodly passions. And basically, they have an approach to the Christian life which says, my feelings trump facts. In other words, it's my experience of things that allows me to adjudicate or to judge on what should happen or what shouldn't happen. My experience, my subjective response to truth is the issue, not the objective reality of the truth itself. My friends, do you see what happens? Language then is made to mean different things. I'll give you an example of that from liberal theology. You find within the liberal camp, you know, pastors, ministers talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you think, oh good, they're talking about the resurrection. And naive, unwitting people think they are committed to the doctrine of the physical, bodily, Resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they talk about the resurrection. But actually, if you sit down with them in their study, and you ask them about the resurrection, they will tell you, no, I don't believe in a physical, bodily resurrection. What I'm talking about when I talk about resurrection is uh, a resurrection that took place in the hearts of the disciples. It's like a metaphorical thing. Um, A pictorial thing. Uh, You know, they had their own little, the disciples had their own little mini um, subjective resurrection. It was in their hearts. But Jesus was not raised bodily, physically, from the dead. Of course not. Uh, But they used the term resurrection. And they twist it. And the word resurrection comes to, comes to mean something else. Unless you nail them. And the average sensible person obviously realizes. You, know, you can shoot right through their 
pernicious doctrine that has absolutely no basis at all. But think about this also, you know, this um, language meaning different things. You know, think about it also in the context of the area of uh, sexuality, you know, in terms of a manipulation of language that is represented in our society. Uh, and sadly is becoming embedded within the church, within the evangelical church. Take, for example, a word like phobia, which you know and I know means an, an, an irrational fear of something. But that word has been twisted of all its meaning. It's been transmuted to be used as an attack on anyone who makes a moral judgment on anything at all. And so you make a moral response, a moral judgment to child mutilation. Child mutilation is irrational and it is wrong on any level. But you speak out about it and you're transphobic. Your phobic phobia is then attached to almost, well, phobia then is almost directly attached to bigotry. So you're a transphobic bigot. And so before you know where you are, you're on the receiving end of the absolute deconstruction of language. And you have no basis upon which to make any meaningful dialogue. And so you end up with the chaos that we have. You know, how can you have any meaningful dialogue? How can you have any meaningful discussion? If even the basics of grammar don't exist. You know, the first person singular can be the third person plural. It's madness. You know, and how can you have any basic fundamental discussion? Because he is a they. And she's a they. And I reiterate again, friends, what what I've said on Sunday and what I've said on numerous occasions, it is absolutely imperative that we be a people of the book It's imperative that you attend and don't neglect the means of grace. So I'm talking to the converted tonight, but there are others who, you know, would neglect the means of grace. We need to encourage them not to and why they shouldn't. You you know, it's critical, it's essential, it's indispensable that we do spend our time reading the Bible at home. Because, beloved, there is no way, no way in this world... That a 30, 40 minute sermon on a Sunday not followed up by any activity during the rest of the week will be able to sustain you in the battle. You know, a 30, 40 minute sermon will not sustain an army. You can't march or fight on an empty stomach. Now in verse 19, you've got to remember these mockers. 
They're ungodly. In the first 19, they are sensual or worldly persons and they cause divisions. They don't have the spirit. How do they cause divisions? Well, they cause divisions by perverting and distorting the truth. Remember, he's already said in verse 10 that they speak evil of whatever they do not know. In other words, these individuals are looking for a theology that will fit their ungodly desires. Their desires are not under the lordship of Christ. They are not under the authority of God's truth. They are making their own plans. They are fulfilling their own passions. But, and again, this is the scary thing, they are not anti-religious. You know, it's not that you can spot them, you know, with the sort of the, the red suit and the horns and the pitchfork. It's not that obvious. They are the people in the suits with the ties, if you respect it. Men of renown, like the folks in Exodus. They're not anti-religious, they're not anti-Bible. They're carrying the Bibles. And so that's what makes it so scary. There are people who are teaching Bible studies, preaching from pulpits, and they've got their own agenda. Now, as we have seen, particularly you know, with the recent debate on uh, same-sex marriage within the CFE, what happens is, is that these people creep in unnoticed. And they creep in unnoticed, as I say, because they're not wearing, you know, the, the red suit, the horns, and the pitchfork, and the pointy tail. They creep in unnoticed, and they get a foothold. And then what they do is they twist the whole issue, and they point the finger saying, it's you Bible people that are causing divisions. Yeah, that's some of the arguments that were leveled during that sort of synodic council at the C of E. When the evangelicals are standing up and saying, we can't have the same sex marriage. And the other crowds who have crept in are saying, you Bible believers, you're the problem. You're the ones that's causing the division. You're the people that are making a fuss and a bother and causing disharmony. Because you always go on about contending for the faith and having to obey the Bible. And you need to realize. And waking up to the fact that society has moved on. Society has moved on philosophically. Society has moved on morally. Society has moved on in every way. And so if you lot really want to be relevant... If you want to be accessible, if you want to be acceptable in a world with new views on everything, then you're going to have to give up on this stuff. You know know about truth unchanged, unchanging. And you lot need to stop being divisive. Nothing new under the sun. Second Kings, is that you, Elijah, troubler of Israel? <laughs> what did Elijah say? I'm not the troubler of Israel. 
You lot are the troublers of Israel. You're the ones who are causing the trouble because you have rejected the commands of Almighty God and you follow your idols. You're the problem. And you see, friends, that's what happened. That's what happened in Elijah's day, standing firm on the word of God. You're the troubler of Israel. You're the one that's causing the divisions. That was what happened in Jude's day. Usually are the troublers, usually are the ones that are causing divisions, as was happening in our day. The divisive people, says Jude, are the ones who part from the word of the Lord Jesus Christ and not to the ones not the ones who hold on to it, and they are the ones who, when they creep in, twist it all. These certain men finally. These certain men do not have the spirit. You know, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot live in defiance of the lordship of Christ and be filled with the spirit of God. They were interpreting things in the light of their dreams, which in their own minds allowed them to justify their behavior. And at the same time, even worse, To make their behavior the kind of pattern for other people to follow. Their ungodly influence. And I have no doubt these people were saying things along the lines like, you know, you ought to come along with us. And you ought to side with us because we have the spirit. You folks don't have the spirit because you're always causing division with your truth unchanged on changing. Carry on. You people today telling you that, um, uh, you know, there's, there's, well, there's nothing new under the sun, isn't there? Uh, they, they do say that, uh, you know, you can come and join us. You don't need that Bible-believing stuff. Um, you don't need to be so uh, tied to the Bible, tied to that restrictive form of worship or whatever. If you could just join our group, you know, the good times would roll. We can indulge ourselves because we are free. We have been set free in Christ. And they use that as a license to indulgence. That's what these characters were saying. You need the spirit to set you free from all that dogma. All of that doctrine. And if you would just get this life. Oh, it would be so, so much better. And you see, essentially, they have a worldly outlook, which is what the word actually means. You know, the essential persons, these worldly persons. You might have a little marginal note that will take you to, to, to that rendering of the passage. And you see, what Jude has done is he has turned the tables on these certain men. And he's saying, no, you are the ones that cause the division." You're the ones that are following your own animalistic instincts. Because didn't he say, like brute beasts, this is what you're doing. And it's you. He's pointing the finger at them. It's you that don't have the spirit of God. What a prophetic word. You know, beloved, when the Bible is declared outmoded, outdated, when the resurrection of Jesus Christ, physical bodily, Resurrection of Jesus Christ is denied. When the saving 
death of Jesus Christ is watered down to a mere example. Or the biblical guidelines in sex and marriage are made amenable. You know, people's greed. We can be sure that the Spirit of God is not leading at all. They are godless. They are ungodly. Because, friends, the work of the Spirit of God is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and to drive home the authority and the sufficiency and the inerrancy of the living and abiding Word of God. That is what Jude is driving at. And he's little epistle. Amen.